Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the podcast, and today I talk with Bill Ivey about his new book, Rebuilding an Enlightened World, Folklorizing America, recently published with Indiana University Press. Bill is former director of the National Endowment of the Arts, former president of the American Folklore Society, and a vocal advocate for the study of expressive cultures both within the academy and beyond. In the book, Bill posits that we are entering a new post-Enlightenment age that increasingly questions science and fact in favor of things like belief. In this information environment, the foundations of traditional sources of authority appear ever weaker, and Bill believes that folklore studies, and particularly the brand of folklore taught and studied in the United States, can offer important tools for understanding this new age. The chapter titles in order read Enlightened, Understanding, identity, negotiation, stories, and listening. And it occurs to me that the story could equally be read in reverse. Modest listening to the stories people tell, help us negotiate with people, understand identities, and ultimately work towards being more enlightened. Overall, it was a fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll listen to the end, where there were some really interesting comments made for not just the American condition, but also beyond. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, uh, a podcast where we talk about some of the latest books in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, and today I'm joined with Bill Ivey. Bill is past president of the American Folklore Society, former chairman of the National Endowment of the Arts, and an author interested in arts, culture, and policy. And today we're going to be talking about his new book, Rebuilding an Enlightened World, Folklorizing America, recently published with Indiana University Press. Uh, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Tim, it's good to be here. Um, Well, we're delighted to have you. And I guess um, I was wondering if you could sort of start off telling us a little bit about yourself. What's your folklore origin story? Well, I... uh like many of my age, my generation, became interested in folklore through a passion for folk music. I uh, uh, was a guitar teacher and earning a degree in history at the University of Michigan. And as I was wrapping up my undergraduate career, I, I wanted to go to graduate school, but I wanted to study the music that I cared so much about. And uh, fortunately for me, the wife of the head of the Herb David Guitar Studio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was working, had been a student of Richard Dorsen's at uh, at Michigan State, and had actually attended one of the summer folklore institutes at uh, uh, at, at Indiana. And uh, so she told me about the Indiana program. I applied, and was enthusiastically accepted, even though I hadn't been that great an undergraduate student. But I 
I had grown up uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, where Dick Dorson had done his early uh, research for the excellent book, Bloodstoppers and Bear Walkers. And uh, he wanted me at Indiana. And so I was admitted and given a little money. And uh, that brought me into a program that really wasn't very interested. In fact, in a way, was actively uninterested in folk music or the folk song revival that was then here in the mid-1960s in full swing. And, uh, and, and I followed along with the opportunity. I, I became very interested in the relationship between oral tradition and historical narrative, oral history, and... Uh, was actually about a third of the way into a doctoral dissertation on uh, on the on the history of the community where I grew up, Calumet, Michigan, where there had been a very important labor strike, a very important strike back in in the early teens in 1913, and uh, and so I shifted away from that emphasis on folk music toward uh, historical narrative, oral tradition. And then suddenly, when, like many of us in the early 70s, when I was unable to find a teaching job in folklore, I uh, had the opportunity to uh, join the staff of the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville. And that led to a full career, more than 20 years, as director of the Country Music Foundation. And uh, while I I didn't have the title folklore scholar on the door. I was always able to use my folklore training in the operation of a museum that dealt with a very traditionally grounded part of America's popular music heritage. So folklore, even though I spent large chunks of time not really working as a folklorist, Folklore was always there. I always attended meetings of the Folklore Society. And I think at every stage of my career, uh, that training and that way of looking at uh, human behavior and that way of looking at community always influenced me and was always extraordinarily helpful. It helped me frame the realities that I was looking at. It helped me understand where people were coming from, what were the underlying motivations of people uh, when they came to me arguments about uh, what should or should not be done around culture. So uh, maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but uh, starting with uh, trying to play guitar in imitation of uh, Mick Reynolds and the Kingston Trio, uh, moving all the way to the opportunity to be uh, the head of the U.S. Cultural Agency, the National Endowment for the Arts, during the Bill Clinton administration. Folklore was always uh, very, very important. It's it's really wonderful to have somebody who's been on sort of uh, in, been involved with folklore for so long and in, and in, on so many levels. It's really um, a really wonderful opportunity, and I think that comes out in this book. Um, it's really it's really a, a an enjoyable read. Um, doesn't read like many of the sort of more uh, some of the drier. Uh, tenure books and things like that that come out of dissertations. Um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how this book came to be. As I gather, it's kind of an, from the preface, it seems like it's kind of an interesting story. Um, it seems like it may have had some 
Well, I'll let you tell the story. I, uh, I had written two books about culture and public policy. And I was wrapping up my work with Vanderbilt University in uh, oh, probably 2014 or 15. And Gary Dunham, the director of the Indiana University Press, asked to have a meeting at the American Folklore Society Conference in the fall of 2015. And I said, sure. And I met with Gary. He said, how about doing a book that takes your interest in public policy and somehow brings it together with, uh, with folklore? Because we, we at Indiana, we're, try, we're working hard to establish the press as the premier uh, publisher of folklore books. And we want a range of materials. We don't, don't only want academic studies. We want some things that are perhaps a little more oriented toward the general public and, uh, and, and might reach out to a, a broader readership. And uh, I immediately said, yes, not knowing what I was going to actually write about. And uh, he wanted the manuscript in a year, which would have been fall of 2016. And he said he wanted 40,000 words, which for those of you out in the listening audience, you know, that's a short book. That's a 95-page that's book or something like that. And uh, so I had agreed. And then I began to try to figure out what I was going to write about. What, what was the connection between folklore and public policy? Obviously, there were... There were things that folklorists had done over the years, working with government agencies. And the U.S. government had different institutions in the Smithsonian and the Library of Congress that studied folklore material. Uh, but that isn't really what I wanted to write about. I wanted to do something that perhaps a little more uh, energetic, a little more aggressive. And... I, I just wandered in the intellectual wilderness for uh, two or three months trying to think of what had gone wrong in the world. Why, why were things so upset? What, was, what were the underlying themes around the lack of respect for science, the lack of respect for conventional institutions, uh, the resurgence of right-wing uh, ethnically based uh, politics in many countries around the world. And this was in my mind. What, what's the underlying cause? And can folklore scholarship say anything about it? And, and I remember almost to the day, I remember the experience. I was walking uh, beside Lake Superior near uh, a, a summer house that I have up in that part of the country far northern part of the U.S. Midwest. And I just said, well, maybe, maybe the Enlightenment is just ending. Maybe the Enlightenment has run out of steam, just as, just as any great intellectual uh, transformation ultimately uh, ends. The Renaissance ended. The Industrial Revolution ended. These things have a period of time in which they're resonant and powerful, and then they fade. And then there were forces out there that I think, uh, that, I, that I began to think may have contributed 
to the stumble of, of enlightenment. And so what began to take shape in my mind was this notion of perhaps what we're experiencing as the enlightenment either ends or, or has hit a, a rough patch is a resurgence of the kind of tribal and ethnic and religious uh, sentiments that have always been there, not only in rural areas, uh, in tribes and, and, and isolated communities, but but woven into uh, every part of modernity. And uh, while I'm thinking about this and working on it, uh, I think, well, all right, I'll do a kind of uh, history of folklore and talk about key personalities and make that kind of the story of the book and have public policy and international issues and American politics kind of woven into it. So that's how I started. And in 2016, I wrote 30,000 words and I brought it to the press and they didn't like it and I didn't like it. And so I went back and started over, this time putting the public policy piece a little bit more in the foreground, folklore and folklore studies a little bit more in, in, in the background. And, uh, and, and that became a more satisfying approach to me. Though I still had the problem, and this, for anyone who's, who's written a book, particularly one of this sort, where you're, it's really an idea book, a big challenge is what I would call the architecture. Here's my overall idea. The Enlightenment is, has weakened. Uh, traditional, informal culture has come forward. It's the thread, it's the intellectual thread that links in, in public policy the uh, Taliban and the Tea Party to Trump, who was by that time when I'm writing, he was an emerging presidential candidate. And uh, to me, that was the overall theme. How do I put that into different uh, sections? So that became it became the primary problem. And uh, of course, then Trump is elected. He immediately starts talking in the language of uh, science denial, uh, distrust of established institutions. He, he becomes a kind of spokesperson for anti-enlightenment thinking. And so I was able to use him. The book is not about him, but I was able to use both his comments and the way the press and other observers responded to his comments to make my beginning argument, this is all, this is what's coming back. And suddenly uh, leaders who thought they understood that we lived in a world of law and regulation were suddenly forced to confront them confront the truth, that we live in a world of, of norms, of, of stories, of, uh, of customs, and, and, and spotted through the language of criticism of what Trump was up to were words that were really folkloric. He's violating, he's not observing traditions, he's uh, ignoring customs, not behaving according to norms, and that means he was really not properly participating in informal culture. At the same time, 
our social science experts in psychology and social science and sociology were quite desperately, I think, trying to explain the motives behind uh, extremism, religious-based extremism, particularly when the recruits into those movements were young people who, who, who had other opportunities. They were middle class, they uh, had decent educations, and suddenly they were traveling to the Middle East to take up with ISIS. And why was that happening? And, and here again, I felt that the notion of archetypes and of mission and of uh, a heroic quest that is so well known to a certain category of folklore scholar perhaps did more to explain why people were motivated to do things that were dangerous and even horrific to themselves and to others. And, uh, and so this began for me to point me toward a way of organizing the book in terms of let's have a chapter on identity. Let's think about uh, the motives for people who are involved in uh, dramatic quest. Let's think about the meaning of stories and why stories can be more important than laws or regulations or even facts. And, uh, and let's then try to wrap up by saying, well, how can we be, be different? Can, if, if we still believe that enlightenment values uh, constitute a global improvement over centuries of ways of established ways of life, how do we bring the best of enlightenment thinking back into the world in a more generous, more negotiated way? And, uh, and always for me in, in the background was belief on my part that it's the perspective or the stance of folklore scholarship that at this time can give us the most productive way engaging these very vexing issues. Uh, I'm wondering if you could sort of unpack this idea of being post-enlightenment a little bit. Um, because it, it's, not that, it's not that you're necessarily seeking to throw the baby and the bathwater out both together, um, but, but sort of recognizing the reality and um, seeing seeing how we can push forward, take what is good from this moment and push forward. Is that right? When I started work on the book, I, I went in thinking, well, the Enlightenment is ending. And we're really simply observing some kind of transition that we can't yet define or totally understand. But, uh, but, it, but it's over. And then as I looked harder, two things struck me, and, and I ended up writing quite a bit about them, uh, more than I, uh, it's something I, an idea I came up with as I was actually working on that second version of the book, which is that the Enlightenment by itself is, is a set of abstractions, uh, human rights, participatory government, uh, the autonomy of the individual, whole set of ideas, but those ideas by themselves don't have any uh, 
capacity to create policy, to create change. They have to be interpreted and, in a sense, brought down to earth by individuals and movements that define them in one way or another and convert those themes into action. And this is where I think it's uh, uh, impossible to look hard at the isms, the uh, Marxism, Darwinism, uh, populism, you, there are dozens of them, and the way in which they have, uh, in a sense, corrupted or reworked the basic meaning of Enlightenment values. And in some cases, when you talk about imperialism or colonialism, you're talking about movements that may have gone forward behind the banner of enlightened thinking, but in fact were dismissive of or repressive of uh, tribal, communal, uh, long-established ways of life, long-established sense of values. And, and my thinking changed from arguing that the enlightenment is over and we have to think of what the new age will be like to the enlightenment has been poorly executed. It hasn't, uh, it's been poorly served by the, by the many isms that have taken the language, sometimes the ideas of enlightenment, certainly in language, and simply used that language as a way of imposing power and, uh, and, and control. So, so it made me, in a sense, more optimistic because I then began to think, well, maybe we can figure out a way to get it right. Go back out in the world, still thinking about human rights and uh, participatory government and uh, uh, women's rights and so on as values, but without the hard edge. Of, of a kind of colonial mentality that tries to extend our way of thinking out and impose that way of thinking, sometimes with force, uh, on, on the entire world. And, and I began to think, well, what would we, you know, what does the Enlightenment have to give up? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be so focused on the individual. Maybe the unit in the world that engages power is the family or the community or the tribe, village. And uh, you know, the, we criticize our own society because of our focus on the individual. And we see it as a source of kind of selfish uh, uh, me, the, the me generation. And, uh, and, and so I think there is an opportunity to begin to think about the world in a, in a way that maybe is a little bit more engaging and a little bit more open to the kind of knowledge that these multiple societies, these ancient ways of being, to the, to the knowledge and understandings that they have generated. So it's not just our way, it's let's, let's negotiate this, let's try to find a way to work on, uh, work work these things out together. But I don't, you know, it, it requires a, it's a different, uh, it, it's, a, it's, it's a mind change. It's a, a change in point of view. And I don't think it's something that will be accomplished uh, easily. 
I wanted Rebuilding an Enlightened World to be one of the books that talks about the big challenges facing the world today. And, uh, and there are a number of them out there, mostly written by very established uh, policy actors, Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, or Richard Haas, the, uh, the, the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, or uh, John Kerry. I mean, these, these are the people who are offering us big ideas about where we are and what we need to do and where we're going. Uh, but I think they're very; th- those arguments are mostly very inside the uh, the assumption that the Enlightenment uh, is uh, forever, that it's a permanent fixture of world uh, thinking, and that every new idea has to automatically stand on the shoulders of the Enlightenment rather than reconfiguring parts of the Enlightenment. So uh, I, I really felt as I got into the work on the book that there were specific ways in which folklore thinking, folklore scholarship could comment intelligently on problems that we were facing, and that there were also opportunities for the stance of folklore to help lead us toward uh, toward solutions. Right. Well, that, I mean, that sort of in many ways very nicely encapsulates some of the major ideas of chapter one, Enlightened. Um, each of the chapters has a different uh, different uh, single word title. Um, in chapter two, um, you sort of at the end of chapter one, you suggest that folklore can sort of provide these tools for moving forward from um, or building on or, or realizing the potentials of enlight- of the Enlightenment idea. And, um, and then in chapter two, you sort of push forward this chapter two entitled identity, um, sort of tries to help us better understand the American identity as a border metaphor. And you specifically draw on the work of two folklorists, Americo Paredes and, uh, who's, and his work on the Southern borders of Texas and Richard Dorson's work on communities in Michigan's upper peninsula. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Paredes and Dorson help us better understand the United States identity and this border metaphor in which, um, to quote your own writing, distinct cultural formations come into contact and, and stimulate a search for novel, novel combinations of available resources. It's one of the things that... Uh... I wanted to do was look at the work of folklore scholars and see how it connected with themes that one would see in the newspaper, you know, not every day, but say every week. And, and I think that notion of American identity is, is a critical uh, question that comes up again and again. And the, the U.S. has both the challenge and the luxury of not living out of a, uh, out of, not living within the environment of romantic nationalism. We, we, we think of ourselves as being citizens of a country in which we're capable of identifying ourselves as in some ways hybrid. You know, you're Italian-American. Maybe it's really near Jewish American. You're, and and apart from Native Americans, 
no one in the U.S. has that kind of historical, heroic uh, connection with language and place. It, in my opinion, the U.S. Uh, Americans have never been able to take that reality and bundle it into a positive, centralized notion of who we are. And so I wanted to bring forward uh, what I would call folkloric thinking, folkloric stance on identity by looking at the work of these two uh, two scholars. Dorison uh, went out into the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I think not knowing if he would find anything that qualified as folklore at all. I mean, he this was a remote part of the U.S. It was ethnically very diverse. Uh, it had a Native American population. It was very prominent, very visible. But yet, these were people here, even in the 1940s, when, when Dorsey was doing his research, they were reading newspapers and listening to the radio, and they were very much caught up in... Uh, in kind of rural modern life. And I don't think he knew what, what he would find. And I, and I suspect, although I, I got to know him quite well, we never really chatted about it. He, uh, he never really talked about what a thrill it must have been for him to have found not only European-style genres of folk, or folk tales and legends and, uh, and so on, but, but also some interesting community historical narratives that were really ways in which people negotiated uh, their sense of identity and their connectedness in a community in which people had very different backgrounds in many cases, again, speaking different languages and so on. And, uh, and, and, and that notion of something being assembled out of difference, to me, is really characteristic of a border uh, a border environment where uh, cultures bump up against one another, there's trade, there's different food, all of these things are kind of there side by side. No one has an obvious upper hand and uh, and, and it, uh, it, it's up to the it's up to the people to work it out and and I think you can take what Dorson observed and blow it up into a kind of metaphor for the American experience, making it more complex. I mean, Dorson was not, he, he later in his career, he did work with African-American communities, but he was really dealing with Native Americans, he did not deal with, with, uh, with race in a very direct way. But, um, but you could blow up his, his idea of how that, those communities functioned into something that's a metaphor for the way the U.S., uh, U.S. works. And, and for Amerigo Paredes, who had a career as a performer and as a journalist, came to folklore scholarship rather late, he saw that border, that Texas-Mexican border area, the Rio Grande area, as a uh, as, as border with built-in conflict. Here you had contention, you had suspicion, you had attempts at domination, uh, people responding to uh, outside political power, the Texas Rangers, and all of this gets translated into stories and songs um, through which people 
explain their situation and 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 and, and negotiate their identities. And and so to me, those two approaches, uh, Dorson seeing borderland as uh, accommodation, Pareda seeing it as an arena of conflict, those two things, I think, take us a long way to, to explaining the larger American experience. And again, to, be, to, to understand where you are, and, and, and I, tr- I always try to honor my epigraphs. I have several at the beginning of the book, but one of them is about to understand the future, you have to begin by understanding where you are. And, and, and I think if Americans can, can admit that we are living in a border, that that border makes us unlike most other societies, and that the challenge is to really find a way to take the reality of conflict and accommodation and border setting and bundle that, combine that into some kind of a vision of togetherness. That's it's that last step that hasn't happened yet. It takes a conversation at the deepest, at the most fundamental level to really begin thinking this way. But to me, uh, the notion of identity and what the folklore position, folklore attitude, folklore approach can bring to understanding identity is kind of a critical starting point. And again, it's one of the issues that Americans talk about all the time. Who are we? Who are we? And, uh, and, and, and uh, I think it's an opportunity for the, the approach of folklore to walk in and make a real contribution. Right. I, I completely agree. And I, I also, I wonder if it's a, if it's a sort of particularly this idea of identity, if it's always in a process of becoming, you say we haven't gotten there yet. I wonder if it's sort of, if we'll ever get there, even if we get to a better place. Um, it, it is a big challenge because the nature of the border is that it is uncertain. It is fluid. It's not uh, established. I mean, if, if you were to, if you were to fix it and say now we know exactly what it is, it might be that it would be ruined. You know that that that, that it may be more a process than a destination, uh, and. Uh, and but even that, even to understand that, I think would be uh, move move our understanding of the society. Right. Um, so moving on, chapter three uh, is entitled "Understanding," and it looks at the work of specifically of mythologist Joseph Campbell, um, and uh, and also at questions of terrorism and 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 sort of. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how our how thinking about myth or the monomyth or things like this can help us better understand humor behavior, human behavior um, in ways that, as you suggested in at the beginning, uh, other disciplines, and particularly social science disciplines, seem to struggle with. This chapter was interesting for me because as I worked on it, uh, a theme that I had not anticipated began to creep into the book. And that is a, a, a criticism, a critique of the role of social science in, uh, in explaining human behavior. I was trying to write about behaviors that seem baffling to 
uh, to traditional uh, social scientific explainers. Terror, terrorism is one. Uh, uh, serial murder is, is another, and uh, they they seem to be uh, uh, they, they seem to go beyond the range of what social science could explain or answer. And I was also writing at you know at an interesting time. Uh, uh, psychology had really come under legitimate criticism because a number of important psychologists had kind of facilitated the enhanced interrogation techniques employed by uh, U.S. military and intelligence services after uh, after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, the, 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 the pollsters, who I think of as being kind of, kind of the minions of social uh, social scientists are uh, have failed to predict the outcome the outcome of the election of uh, of, night of of 2016 and uh, and there were other you know the, the, then there was the, you know, the persistent inability to talk about people who were motivated to become terrorists and how did that happen and 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 i rather than go to what i would call external explanations that is childhood experiences or uh, economic deprivation those kinds of things I, I i thought that it might be worthwhile to look at at the work of joseph campbell who has kind of been in and out of folklore studies i was very pleased uh, Elliot Oring gave a talk at the most recent American Folklore Society meeting, uh, arguing that folk, folklore scholars should do more with big ideas. And in the process, he did talk about, uh, about Campbell. And, and of course, Campbell was a mythologist looking at the ancient traditions that were often carried on in, uh, in epic poems. That, um, that connected societies with, uh, with heroic uh, actions of the past. And what Campbell put forward was the, the, the real possibility that people then and even today would act out of these uh, themes, themes of heroic quest. And he attempted to compare myths of many societies and develop a, uh, a, a, a set of uh, actions that the hero would always take in the quest to, uh, to save society. And th- these, uh, these themes were, were, uh, Taken up within popular culture, and most prominently, they were the uh, inspiration for the structure of the Star Wars movies. And uh, and what what Campbell was really saying was that uh, apart from 
psychological or the sociological or the economic explanation for human behavior. There are deep, shared human impulses that relate to these themes of heroic quest and that uh, it may be a humanities understanding rather than a scientific analysis that takes us further, closer to an understanding of, uh, of, of why people would abandon uh, economic security, abandon social standing in order to engage in something that is dangerous, uh, but possibly heroic. And, uh, and, and so again, just as I think Dorsen and Paredes offer a different look at how, how the American experience can be identified and characterized, I think Campbell uh, gives us a way of thinking about human behavior within community in, uh, in a different way. Oh, wonderful. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought, I thought it was really interesting the way you sort of interwove, uh, the way these sort of, uh, discussions are interwoven, uh, particularly in this chapter, um, chapter four entitled negotiation, then sort of takes this, you, you sort of started by saying, you look at sort of this question of social sciences and you take it. Um, and, and and the engagement of academic relation disciplines with policy makers, you sort of take it even further in chapter four, um, and you begin with this sort of discussion of the American Psychological Association's connections with, um, I would say, torture program um, in the United States. Um, but beyond that, it also, I mean, it, the majority of the chapter looks at the process of establishing the Smithsonian's Folklife Festival and the Library of Congress's American Folklife Center. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this chapter and sort of how it fits in with with the uh, with the goals of helping us understand this sort of post-Enlightenment idea and folklore's place in it. Yeah, in, uh, when I turned in the my second version of the book, and I think it grew to about 45,000 words. That's where, where it has ended up. The uh, Gary Dunham gave me notes on the book, and this was the chapter he liked the least. He didn't think it worked very well. And and it didn't. Uh, it, 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 it was a, a move. It was, it was a chapter in which I basically wrote about folklore, folklore scholars and their uh, relationship with government. And I knew that it was a weak chapter, and it was kind of inside. And I kept thinking and thinking and thinking, and and and, and it finally came to me that folklore studies has had a a fairly limited relationship with uh, with with government. I mean, there are some institutions. There uh, have been programs. National Endowment for the Arts and the Smithsonian and the uh, U.S. Library of Congress. Uh, but, uh, but it's been a fairly modest connection. And so I, I started to think, well, why? And 
folklore scholars have often been quite uh, disturbed by their by, by the lack of attention. Oh, we're more important. Uh, the studies we do, our, our, our people we work with, very valuable. Well, they, that hardcore policy attention has never never emerged. And I and I began to think, and this was a change in thinking, just as I discovered some things along the way as I was writing, rebuilding an enlightened world. Uh, this is something where I changed my mind, and, and I began to see that folklore scholars have been uh, quite uh, cautious about taking up the, uh, the role of uh, handmaiden to public policy. And then I looked briefly, I didn't have time to do, do any kind of deep uh, study, but, but I, I glanced at the way so much of European folklore scholarship had been caught up in nationalism, romantic nationalism of the, of the 19th century, and how easy it was for folklore scholarship, because it talks always about, about identity, it had stories that are grounded in uh, in history, in the work of rural populations. It's very easy for folklore to become co-opted or utilized by uh, often uh, very uh, dangerous uh, policy actors who wanted to validate their 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 assertions of power by by invoking these ancient tales and ancient myths common language and so on. And this goes from fairly modest nationalist uh, enthusiasm to something like Nazism that, that clearly used folklore as, as a way of uh, solidifying a sense of national unity and a sense of all of the others who were inferior. And, and in looking at it, 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 it made me realize that Again, and this goes back to the American, the U.S. context, that U.S. folklore scholarship has been uh, blessed by the absence of, uh, of a clear sense of single national identity. I mean, the U.S. simply doesn't have that, 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 that sense of shared myths, shared language, common tales, a kind of shared ethnicity. And as a result, with all of the struggles we've had internal with, uh, with racial minorities and other minorities and, and external, working with immigrants and negotiating with, with the rest of the world, as many problems as we've had, we still have that advantage of not coming at the other with a strong sense of, 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 of identity mired uh, in these in this mythic past. And so, uh, so I began to see the American folklorists as being a kind of tentative participant of the government. And you actually had uh, Richard Dorsett and others arguing that, uh, that, that, um, uh, the government was, was in a sense uh, corrupting the scholarship. And then there was a very, very important episode in, uh, in the fairly recent past in which the American Folklife Center given an opportunity to conduct some research last minute in advance of, uh, of the destruction of the 
many communities in the Mid-South, uh, just in advance of, of the construction of a dam that would flood uh, small towns, farming areas, Alabama, parts of Tennessee. And, uh, and, and one folklorist leading the, kind of leading the charge sort of said, uh, no, we can't do that. That's a kind of immoral uh, alliance, even though it would have been a big research project for the field and would have brought folklore into uh, you know, a financially uh, lucrative situation. Many scholars could have participated in the study. And, and the American Folklife Center basically said no, after a, a lot of internal debate. I was one of many observers who thought that was a mistake. I thought this was a missed opportunity. But as I began to see the way in which um, economics and sociology and psychology had, in a sense, sold their souls to public policy actors, I began to see this reluctance on the part of folklore to get engaged in, uh, in, in government work as being something uh, really a positive. And I completely changed my interpretation, my, my sense of the meaning of the American Fourplex Centers not getting involved with, uh, with that salvage research right before communities were destroyed, to see it as something positive. And it's almost as though um, folklore scholarship, without really thinking it through completely, has kind of kept itself uh, uh, immune to the undermining forces of government. And if today someone were to say, all right, folk, folklore field, uh, help us, how do we rethink uh, State Department work? How do we rethink uh, uh, the way in which we deal with uh, race or rural communities? What can we bring to the table? I think folklore today could come into that alliance with a lot of sophistication and a lot of caution and could probably have a better outcome. And I, and I will say just selfishly that working that chapter through was very satisfying for me because it was a chapter where I started without much. And I think in some ways it's at least internal within the field of folklore. I think that chapter is perhaps the, the most aggressive and, and maybe will be the most argued about chapters in the book. Hearing you say it like that, it really, it, it does start to make a lot more sense. It was initially, I was also um, a little bit confused at first. Um, and uh, hearing you say it like that, it starts to, it starts to fit in. Um, and I have to say that following this chapter on negotiation, the next chapter, probably my favorite of the book, um, is called Stories. Um, I personally loved it because I think it touches on what I personally, and in my very humble opinion, consider to be one of the most exciting subdisciplines of folklore scholarship at the moment, and that's of legend. Um, the chapter just touches on a whole bunch of really current and emergent phenomena from urban legends and conspiracies online to fake news. Dave Isay's work in the Amazing Story Corps project, uh, and also, you know, sort of older things like Delheim's Folklore's Nature and the Sun's Myth. Um, and in this chapter, I'd say 
I think my favorite quote is when you say, if the enlightenment was enabled by print technology, our new world of magical thinking, weird combinations of fiction and reality, ISIS rants and right-wing ideology is empowered and accelerated by our new thing, the internet. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk then a little bit about the power of legend in the United States and how folklore's attention to legend can help us uh, sort of navigate this transition from enlightenment thinking to post-enlightenment. If you, if you think of legend, not so much as a specific genre, but as a process by which uh, stories are constructed and reconstructed and shared in order to incorporate views of reality uh, in order to explain reality, in order to uh, create the foundation for future action, and that this is all informal. This is not, you know, this, this is not being done by the New York Review of Books. It's not being written about in foreign affairs, except by accident when they would perhaps find themselves uh, conveying a a, uh, a, you know, a a folk narrative about uh, something that happened in wartime or in a in a uh, State Department negotiation, but but I think that that notion of storytelling being a critical part of the way human beings organize reality in order to explain reality, explain themselves, and and stimulate others to action is is really critical. And when when you when we talk, as uh, as Jimmy and Sue and I were talking about at the beginning of our conversation with. With the enlightenment, as the enlightenment stumbles, the cracks in the in the enlightened in the in the prideful enlightened uh, array of rules and regulations and laws, as those kind of give way to action that's stimulated more by by, by stories, this is, I think, the space where the insights of folklore scholarship can add the most to good public policy because it, it it's a way of looking at what we see and read and hear uh, in a in, in a in a new way and gives us a new set of tools for uh, understanding that while truth may not be there, in a literal sense, there, that there are you know, important meanings that need to be uh, uh, that, that need to be that need to be engaged, and, and I, I think I think folklore scholars should own the study of fake news because I think fake news is an extension of the kind of legendary uh, storytelling that folklore scholars have been dealing with for, de- for many decades. And, and I think we're the ones that have the handle on this. And, uh, and, and I'm hoping that, 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 uh, that our colleagues will pick this up and, and work with it, because when it comes to that world, um, we're the smartest guys in the world, the smartest women in the world. Yeah, I would, I would also say that I just saw a new volume about that it seems to have been published I think just just a week or two ago, and I'm really looking forward to to picking that up and hopefully doing a 
a podcast also in the future with the editors of that. I think it was Trevor Blank um, and um, and others. So, um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree that especially in this world of fake news, I think this should be we have we have tools in place and hopefully um, folklorists will have more voice for that. Um, the final chapter of the book is called listening. And, um, in it, you sort of, you sort of look at, uh, sort of Henry Glassy's sort of modest listening, um, as a way of sort of, as, as an extra way of sort of moving beyond perhaps you just sort of said prideful, the pridefulness, but also maybe sort of the arrogance of trying to impose, uh, certain ideas on on other people, and instead being willing to listen to alternative knowledge systems. Um, and I was wondering, just uh, if you could talk a little bit more about sort of how listening fits into into this array. When uh, when I began work on this chapter, I happened to be reading uh, Henry Glassie, you know, Ireland, and Turkey, and other places, and Irving Goffman at the same time. And of course, Goffman is sociology, but he's dealing, deals with world cultures. And, and, and I was reading, he writes about the crofters. Well, you know, crofting is a very unusual uh, shared land use uh, system that you find in, in, in Scotland. And, and, and if you read Goffman, you never meet a crofter. You get categories that deal with crofters, you know, social organization, who are the leaders, who are the managers, and everybody is in a category and then talked about in terms of the category. When you read Glassy, it's it's the other way. It's uh, You meet a lot of people, and you have to kind of pull out meaning from a set of individual experiences that Henry doesn't go in and analyze, and he certainly doesn't analyze people in terms of their social standing, their economic position, their psychological you know, history, and so on. And uh, it, it gave me a very strong feeling that even though I think some of my folklore colleagues like to think of themselves as social scientists, I think the field tilts pretty heavily toward the humanities. And I mentioned earlier, we were talking about another chapter, that I, I, as I was working on on rebuilding, uh, the book really became something of a critique of of the stance of social science. And I don't think I say it in the book, but I'll I'll say it now, that I I almost feel we're at the end of the era of social science, something we're seeing in the inability of polls to get things right and the corruption of, of psychology and the inability of sociology to explain violence and terrorism, that if you if you go a decade or two with those established uh, explanatory social scientific fields failing to answer questions, I think we're going to see a turning toward some other way of, uh, of, of, engaging, uh, of engaging reality and of explaining behavior. And, uh, and to me, that requires not going out with a, a set of categories that you impose on what you see, but going out and listening and, and thinking about how 
people organize their own lives. I, I think uh, I mentioned this in relation to the introduction, but the U.S. has this glorification of the individual and the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinking placed the individual at the uh, at the center of good public policy, and so it was the individual had to engage power. If you go out in the world and listen, it's almost always a family or a clan or a tribe that is the key unit that's engaging power. And just to begin to listen, uh, to me, is to, uh, is to understand that pulling out individuals from a clan or a family in another society in terms of, say, sending girls to school. We're going to educate girls. Well, that's great, but we have to understand that the context often means that you have to work with the family or the community to, to make something like that work. And I think we've really not done well in, in that regard. My, my time in China, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the by the, by the role of religion and spirituality in China, you don't you don't have that U.S. style organized religions, but you have a very strong sense of, of ancestors still around. You have uh, a strong sense of spirituality connected to to nature. There are meditative and worship uh, practices that are followed. But in a in a different way, it, 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 it's a sense of spirituality as being always present, perhaps not as strictly institutionalized. And uh, and again, I think there's so much to learn from going to societies that are unlike ours, and not beginning by saying, "Here we are, here's what you need to do," but go there and say. Begin by by listening. What what can you tell us? What do you think? How do you? What do you want? And uh, I think we 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 ask those questions too infrequently. I I go on at some length about uh, the U.S. State Department and the way in which over the years, particularly back in the 1950s during the era of intense anti-communism in the U.S. and McCarthyism, the way in which the State Department punished some of our smartest people, particularly those who were dealing with China and Southeast Asia, because they told us true things about Mao Zedong and, uh, and uh, about, uh, about other leaders who had captured the imaginations of their people, but because they either had taken up or uh, in some way, utilize the language of Marxism. Suddenly, the people who carried the messages back were, uh, were treated as though they were uh, anti-American, and and so you had a tremendous uh, a diminution of the State Department's capacity to be a message-sending system that would bring uh, alternative knowledge from the outside world back to American leaders. It became an institution that was perpetually set on send and never unlistened. 
and the, the good listeners who had, in some cases, spent years learning the nuances of the societies where they, where they were posted, uh, they were pushed aside, ignored, and new, uh, new State Department uh, uh, officials didn't have their, that capacity. That's really fascinating. I, and I mean, I think, I think it, it sort of says just again and again, just how it, listening being such an important part of folklore and folklore studies. This is another area where maybe folklorists can continue to be of benefit. Um, so we've uh, used up a lot of your time today. Um, and I was just wondering if maybe you could ask just uh, if I could ask you just one more question, and that's what you're working on now. Well, I'm one of the things that it became fascinating to me while I was working on, on this book was the importance of the biographies of uh, of folklore scholars. I, uh, we don't know nearly as much as we should about not just the scholarship, but the, the factors that, um, that made these leaders what they are. I mean, Dick Dorison in particular hasn't been, been, been studied. Uh, we need more about Ben Botkin, who's a, a, an important guy who was 14 or 15 years older than Dorison. Uh, if, you, if you look at the array of early leaders, and the, and the society was very male-dominated in its Early years, it's much less so today. But if you look at Dorison and Alan Lomax, uh, Amerigo Paredes, and then Archie Green, who comes who comes into the field rather late, these four guys—they were all born within a couple of years of one another. Very different paths in, in folklore scholarship, and I, and I think looking at how those individuals influenced the whole. I think it's it's something that I'm I'm really interested in. And then and then I become really fascinated by this. Something I didn't write about at all. But I I think there is a, a set of folklore scholars, American folklore scholars, who who really defined an entire arena of American popular music as being folk essentially. I mean these are you know, I'm thinking about Ralph Rensler and Archie Green, uh, a number of Roger Abrams to an extent, who took folk, took bluegrass away from country music and made it a kind of folk music. They they took urban blues away from R and B and made it a kind of folk music. And I think the influence of folklore in kind of making sure that America saw certain parts of its popular culture as being folk, essentially. It was a very, was a very important, uh, was a very important uh, deal, and I and it's a it's a big research project, and I don't really have the uh, uh, I don't have the ability to uh, get into it at my age, but I think it's something I would like to hand off hand off to others, and then I, I would say finally, I became convinced that the American approach to folklore scholarship which really has to do with modernity 
and folklore interwoven, often in urban settings, is a very, very important approach. And I think it's the one that probably will lead the way into to the uh, to to the global expansion of, fol- of folklore work. That I think at the moment Europe and even some of Asia operates under the burden of, uh, of romantic nationalism and romantic nationalism brings government and power and business into the field in a way that I think is hurtful. But I think the, the U.S. approach, um, not too in, enmeshed with nationalist objectives and very accustomed to finding the traditional uh, side-by-side with the official is really the uh, is, is really the wave of the future, and I think there's almost an opportunity for someone to write a new book about uh, about America, the American approach to folklore studies. Well, both sound fascinating. Um, I can't wait to see even even the early stages. I feel like will will make tremendous contributions. Um, Bill, we've used used up a lot of your time. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it, Tim. Good talking with you. Likewise. Thank you.